This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the lives of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course. Katarina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Two Emmas, Emily, Wannabe Sleuth, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, Judy, and John. Thank you so much. So this podcast will be on Moses Satole. Moses was born on November 17, 1964, in the large township of Vosloris, South Africa. So let's get into some history for that time. The Vietnam War was still going on. This particular year, the North Vietnamese general seized power in Saigon, South Vietnam. Very soon, there would be sustained American bombing raids in North Vietnam, which was dubbed Operation Rolling Thunder that lasted for another three years. The year before, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So in 1964, the Warren Commission reported on the assassination and concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone and with an unknown motive. This report was presented to President Johnson and then after to the public. There was some conflicting evidence, and many people then and even now believe that something else entirely happened, which could be a whole other podcast if you guys are interested. Also this year, the Civil Rights Act was being signed into law by President Johnson. This made it illegal to discriminate against someone based on their race, religion, sex, national origin, or color of skin. It also made segregation in public places illegal and enforced the desegregation of schools as well as addressing unfair and unequal access to voting and voter registration. This was also the year that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in leading a non-violent resistance against racial prejudice and segregation in the United States. 
At this time, he was only 35 years old. He was then awarded $54,123, which would be roughly $460,000 today, and he donated all of it to his cause in furthering the civil rights movement. At the University of California, students stormed the administration building and staged a sit-in. 800 students were arrested. In Egypt, work began on the Aswan Dam by diverting the Nile to the man-made canal. The British and French governments announced their commitment to build a tunnel under the English Channel this year. In Scotland, the Queen opened the fourth road suspension bridge, which connected Edinburgh to Fife. And in South Africa, Nelson Mandela and seven others were sentenced to life imprisonment for his revolutionary anti-apartheid movement. Popular movies from 1964 include It's a Mad, Mad World, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Mary Poppins, and My Fair Lady. Popular musicians were The Beatles, Roy Orbison, Ella Fitzgerald, as well as Simon and Garfunkel. Also born in 1964 were Terry Hatcher, Lenny Kravitz, Russell Crowe, and Keanu Reeves. So, this was the atmosphere that Moses was born into. His parents were Simon and Sophie Satole. He was one of five children. The others were Quasi, two unnamed children, Patrick, and then Moses, who was said to be the fourth child. He was born into poverty, and the family lived in a rather bad neighborhood in a dilapidated house. This was during apartheid where black Africans were segregated by the government to live in horrible conditions or, if they were lucky, they were forced to live in government housing near the factories and mines that they had to work in. Anyone who tried to stand up or fight back was jailed, or worse. These children would stand and openly watch the violence in the streets the local people throwing large rocks at vehicles and smashing windows, and then the authorities would shoot them. Now, Moses later said that his mother was an abusive alcoholic, that he was bullied by another child and was also raped as a young boy. This entire situation was made much worse when his father died when he was only six years old. His mother was unable to support herself and all of the children, so they were evicted from their home, and sources say that she took all five children into a police station after demanding that the children not tell the officers that she was their mother. And there, she abandoned them. The children were then taken to a nearby orphanage. Now, I couldn't immediately find the name of this orphanage, but... Sources say it was incredibly strict and the children were horribly abused. According to the show Biography, Moses spent the next few years being bounced around from orphanage to boys' home, and at one point he ran away in an attempt to find his mother when he was around eight or nine years old. The distance that he had to travel was pretty daunting. He was able to locate his mother, who then promptly sent him back to the orphanage. 
At 11 years old, he was moved to another orphanage in KwaZulu-Natal, which was designated for black Africans to live on near the Indian Ocean. Two years later, he ran away again and hitchhiked nearly 300 miles back to his hometown where he found his older brother, Patrick, and he asked to stay with him, to which his brother agreed. So even at this young age, he was forced to work odd jobs for any kind of money that he could make to help support himself. In his infrequent free time, he began training as an amateur boxer. In his teens, he realized that the girls were noticing him due to his handsome smile and his charm. It was obvious that he was a quite intelligent young man and was described as well-spoken. Moses was known to frequent the local library and listened to classical music, and the local girls were really impressed by this. But even if he felt a slight bit of rejection, he would fly into a rage. Moses later said that when he was a teenager, he was quite sexually active, but he raped a girl and supposedly spent seven years in prison. And that's his childhood. There's a lot to unpack, so let's get into it. Now, the elephant in the room is obviously apartheid, and this separatist system divided South Africa in so many ways, perpetuated brutal crimes of torture, rape, and murder against people of color, as well as against white people who fought alongside the black population. As with what happened to Moses' family, a large number of people were forcibly removed from their homes, evicted, and worked in abhorrent conditions in the labor systems. It emasculated men, abused, and assaulted women violently, and broke apart so many family units. And we know that Moses was definitely witness to the violence and mayhem of the time. The effects of apartheid was particularly devastating for black children. According to an article written for the International Journal for the Advancement of Counseling, the consequences of poverty, racism, and violence have resulted in psychological disorders and a generation of maladjusted children. There is identifiable trauma associated with growing up in the divided society and the, quote, child shock caused by political unrest and a society in the throes of major social transition. That sounds familiar. Children exposed to that kind of violence harms a child's emotional, psychological, and even physical development. They are more likely to have difficulty in school, abuse drugs or alcohol, act aggressively, suffer from depression or other mental health problems, and are far likelier to engage in criminal behavior as adults. And then, of course, we have the death of his father and the abandonment of his mother at such a young age. Children who experience parental loss are at a higher risk for many negative outcomes, including depression, anxiety, somatic complaints, PTSD, less academic success, lower self-esteem, more sexual risk behaviors, and so on. A child grieving the loss of a parent will usually display mood swings, will suffer with nightmares, 
socially withdraw, and have poor concentration and can become quickly overwhelmed. According to PsychCentral.com, one of the most damaging dynamics of dysfunctional families is where a parent abandons their child. Children can develop depression and feel helpless to control the abandonment. They often suffer with stomach aches, headaches, which are a sign of anxiety. Many suffer from actual attachment disorders and have emotional difficulties. Some can even develop borderline personality disorder, have caretaking codependency issues, display clingy and needy behavior, have extreme jealousy and possessiveness, aren't able to self-soothe. The list is very long. For another example, remember the podcast I did on Peter Woodcock? Yes, abandonment issues are that bad. If you haven't heard that one, I'll link it in the notes. And quite honestly, I don't even know where to begin with his time in the orphanages and the boys' homes. Again, I couldn't find the name or names of the specific ones he was in during my research, but we all know that some children suffer horrific physical, mental, and sexual abuse in some of these places. And they happen at state orphanages, religious orphanages, it really doesn't matter. Now, as I can already hear the comments, no, I'm not saying all orphanages are this way, but some are. My opinion is, if you do not like children, don't work with children. And if you do work with children, keep your eye on them and, I don't know, protect them. So it comes as no surprise that he grew up with serious abandonment issues, attachment issues, aggressive tendencies, and a need for complete control, which is what rape is about. So let's continue. At some point, he was released from prison for his rape conviction. Moses later said that it was during this time when he was in prison that turned him into the monster that he later became. He also made a statement that he felt a great deal of anger at the false accusations of rape against him from other women. But I myself might argue the validity of that statement, considering he served time. But once out of prison, people that knew him described him as mild-mannered, intelligent. Again, it was said that he was well-spoken, quite handsome and charming, and had a confidence and social ease about him. He had worked in the Johannesburg gold mines in the past, but then he worked for and eventually managed a made-up shell organization called, quote, Youth Against Human Abuse, which he said devoted itself to the end of child abuse. As the self-proclaimed manager, it was his duty to hire new employees. So in 1987, life was going pretty decent for the 23-year-old Moses, and he even had a girlfriend. And yet he lured her own sister out to a Johannesburg mine dump where he attacked and raped her. He then left her there tied up with part of her clothing over her face. She was so terrified of him that she didn't go to the police to report it. In the next two years, he raped two more women. One of them, he even threatened to pour gasoline all over her and set her on fire if she did not comply. 
After assaulting her, he strangled her until she was unconscious. This woman, however, did go to the police after her attack in February of 1989 and filed a police report. She had known Moses and her report led to his arrest and subsequent trial. And side note, when they arrested Moses, she was still in the back seat of the police car and they had to ride side by side to the station to which he muttered to her repeatedly, I should have killed you, bitch. During that trial, the previous two women came and testified against him and he was sentenced to six years in prison. He vehemently denied his guilt during the entire trial and he was released in 1993 on good behavior. So while in prison, Moses stated he was sodomized by other inmates, physically assaulted and rejected because he was a rapist. But he didn't use the time in prison to think about his actions or how he could be a better person. Oh, no. What he did do was decide that leaving his victims alive was the root of the problem that caused these sorts of consequences. It is said that he met the sister of another inmate while in prison. This is a woman named Martha. Once he was released, she allowed him to move in with her, though her family was fervently against it. He considered her his wife, although they never officially married, and he began working with another of her family members working on cars in the front yard. And for a short time, he was satisfied. And life was getting better for the black community as a whole during this time, and Nelson Mandela worked to negotiate the end of apartheid. So after a few months, he stopped doing mechanic work, and he left every morning, telling Martha that he was going out to look for work. What he was actually doing was singling out naive women that had been coming into the city from the country looking for a job. To him, this was easy prey. He would tell them that he would give them a job and he would give them phony applications to fill out and so on. In July of 1994, the soon-to-be father committed what the authorities believed to be his first murder. An 18-year-old young woman by the name of Marina was looking for work. He lured her, as he did all of his victims, to a remote field where he proceeded to beat rape, and then strangle her in broad daylight with her own undergarments. He then somehow wrote the word bitch, and he wrote a couple of other things on her body, and then he dumped it. This would, of course, be his calling card. He was elated in his first experience, but as we know, reality is never as good as the fantasy, and his, quote, high would not last long. His next two victims were 26-year-old Amanda and 32-year-old Joyce, both the next month in August. Amanda was actually kind of seeing Moses on the side at the time, though he was still living with Martha, his common-law wife. Two more young women would be murdered in September. So in three months' time, he had already killed five women. In December, another body of a woman was found, discovered a month after she had been killed. In January of 1995, Moses and Martha separated, and Martha kept their infant daughter. He went on to murder 27-year-old Beauty Soko, 
Her body, like the others, was discovered out in an open field, and many of them within feet of each other. By this point, there was no denying that there was a serial killer on the loose as the area newspapers began printing stories about the similarities between the victims and the method of killing. In March, he claimed another victim, and then starting in April, he went on a murdering spree. Three women in April, and one of them had her toddler son with her, and his body was discovered near his mother. He had suffered a head injury and died from exposure. He killed a further four in May, four in June and July, and on his year anniversary from his first murder, that August, he murdered a further two women. It was at this point that the now president, Nelson Mandela, visited Boxburg, which was the city near where the murders were happening, and he pleaded with the public in helping apprehend this serial killer. Not long after this, a man noticed Moses acting a bit strangely while standing near a young lady as they walked off together. This man gave it a moment, and then his instincts led him to walk in the direction the two had gone, where he discovered the woman's dead body. Unfortunately, he had been too far away to be able to give a detailed description of the man. And now Moses was being called the, quote, ABC killer due to the cities that he had killed in, Adder Ridgeville, Boxburg, and Cleveland, South Africa. South Africa's actual first profiler, Mickey, was assigned to analyze the data in this case. She at first thought that it was the work of two different killers, but she brought in a retired FBI profiler to help her, and together they revised the profile. His profile stated that the perpetrator was an intelligent, organized individual with a high sex drive with a growing sense of confidence. Moses killed a further 10 women that September. Then in October of 1995, Moses called a local newspaper and identified himself as Joseph Maguena, saying he was the, quote, man that is so highly wanted, unquote. He told them that he was indeed responsible for the murders, except for a couple, including the death of the baby. He stated that he actually loved children. He told them that he hated women because he had been falsely accused of rape and put in prison. He then gave the interviewer some clues that helped the authorities to find yet another victim. Moses then went on to kill four more women that month. Now, the police had been out interviewing people who had known the murder victims and a commonality revealed itself. All of them had been looking for and been in contact with a man who was offering them a job. They analyzed phone records of the last few numbers called by each woman and they discovered that they had all called a number belonging to Moses' sister. They dug further, discovered Moses, and a routine background check showed that he had a history of violence toward women and had served time because of it. They quickly announced that Moses Sitole was wanted in regards to the murdered women. 
His face was plastered on the cover of all of the papers and displayed on news television. Much like Richard Ramirez, Moses tried his best to disappear. He went to various family members, but none would have him. And then an undercover police officer recognized him and ordered him to freeze. Moses was not going to go quietly, so the officer was forced to shoot and bullets landed in his leg and in his abdomen. He, of course, was rushed to the hospital where he survived his injuries and it was discovered that he was HIV positive and was then taken to a secure military hospital to recover. While there, he admitted to several of the murders to detectives who had come in to question him. So, fun fact, one of the interrogators was a female chosen on purpose to get a rise out of him and it was successful. As she questioned him and he relived his crimes in his mind, he became aroused and started self-soothing, if you will, under the table. He bragged to her about how he had killed each of them, the methods he used, and so on. When asked why he did it, his response was, quote, to teach them a lesson. Five days later, he was formally charged with 29 murders and transferred to the same prison he had spent time in before to await his trial. Moses' trial began in October of 1996, and during the year when the case was being built, they changed his charges to 38 murders, 40 counts of rape, and 6 counts of robbery. He unsurprisingly pled not guilty to all of the charges. His early surviving victims came in to testify, and they stated that he seemed to get off on torturing them. He would strangle them, and just as they were about to lose consciousness, he would loosen their underwear he had around their neck. They would regain full consciousness again, and then he would begin to strangle them, and this process he would do over and over, feeding off of their terror. Some of his less fortunate victims, it was determined that he sometimes took the strap off of their purses wrapped it around their necks and fastened it to a low-hanging tree branch to prolong their suffering until they were no longer strong enough to hold themselves up, effectively hanging themselves. It also came out that he derived great pleasure from calling the victim's families after he had murdered them to taunt them about their loved one being dead. So in December of 1997, Moses was found guilty and sentenced to 50 years for each murder and additional time for the rapes and burglary. His total sentence was over 2,400 years. And of course, that's where he sits today. So what do we have here? We have a little boy brought up in horrific conditions during apartheid, which was absolutely unacceptable. His father died. His mother abandoned him into an orphanage where he was abused and most likely neglected. 
I would say that he developed a personality disorder. He was, at the very least, suffering with abandonment issues. And then he went on to further torture and murder almost 40 women total to punish them for the sins of what happened to him when he was a child. So tell me, guys, do you think he was born this way, conditioned to be this way? What do you think? Leave me a comment down below the video, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate that so much. Thank you and have a great day.